Hello and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. We are less as a country without Gord Downey in it. Canada mourns. This week, musical icon, poet and true patriot Gord Downey passed away. The death of the tragically hip frontman has led to tears and emotional tributes across the nation. We'll hear what the Prime Minister had to say. We'll check in with the MP from Kingston, the hip's hometown. And we'll take a look at Downey's long history with politicians. After that, we'll speak with Algonquin elder Claudette Commanda about Downey's efforts to use his dying days to shine a spotlight on the struggles and injustices facing our Indigenous peoples. Amid a political firestorm around his personal finances, Finance Minister Bill Morneau has announced he's selling off all his shares in his family business and placing his assets in a blind trust. But is it enough to satisfy his critics? The NDP's Nathan Cullen is here to explain why he believes the conflict of interest questions have not been answered yet. And we end off our show with the Chief Commissioner of the Canadian Human Rights Commission, who is slamming the Quebec government's new controversial law to ban face coverings like the niqab. For your politics, for your power, welcome to The Hill. No dress rehearsal, this is our life. A powerful voice in our nation has been silenced. This week, we lost an icon when tragically hip frontman Gord Downey passed away. He had been suffering from terminal brain cancer and was 53 years old. Downey left a musical mark on Canada using poetry and his unique and sometimes haunting voice to speak to Canadians. Whether it be a trip to the cottage, a party with friends, an outing at a hockey game, or just listening to your headphones while sitting at a Tim Hortons, the hip were there, woven into the social fabric of our country. All right. The band formed in 1984, and for more than three decades, they made an impact with high-energy performances and some odd yet confident dancing from Downey himself. But what really drew fans to the hip was the powerful music and stories told in their songs, which often made us reflect on our lives, our actions, and our country. Gord Downey wasn't normally political with his storytelling, but he didn't shy away from tough conversations either. As fans came out in droves for the HIP's farewell tour, Downey used that platform to urge all of us to protect the environment, fix the crumbling infrastructure in northern communities, and address the injustices against Indigenous Canadians. So it should be no surprise, given his impact on Canadian music and community, that MPs on Parliament Hill were mourning with the rest of the country upon news of Downey's death. Wednesday morning, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau addressed the country with tears rolling down his cheeks. Gord was my friend, but Gord was everyone's friend. It's who we were. Our buddy Gord, who loved this country with everything he had, and not just loved it in a nebulous, oh, I love Canada way. He loved every hidden corner, every story, every aspect of this country that he celebrated his whole life. Um, and he wanted to make it better. He knew as 
great as we were, we needed to be better than we are. And that's why his last years were devoted to Cheney Wedjack and to, to reconciliation. This is something that I've certainly drawn inspiration and strength from. Uh, and we are, <laughs> we are less as a country without Gord Downey in it. Uh, and it, we all knew it was coming, but we hoped it wasn't. And uh, I thought I was going to make it through this, but I'm not. It hurts. Now, no place in the country is as devastated by the passing of Gore Downey as his hometown of Kingston. To speak more about Downey's legacy in the city along the shores of Lake Ontario, I'm joined now by Liberal MP Mark Gerritsen, who represents the riding of Kingston and the islands. Thanks for having me. Uh, I wish it was under better circumstances, mm-hmm. but um, you grew up in Kingston. Uh, your father was mayor. You were mayor of Kingston. And, and through your time uh, in your community, I know you had many uh, interactions with the Tragically Hip. You actually grew up near some of the members of the band. Is that correct? I grew up um, about uh, two or three doors down from Rob Baker and Gord Sinclair. And I can still remember as a, as a kid delivering newspapers on the street and hearing them practicing in, in Judge Baker's basement. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been something else to see what they've become now. And you were there for those early days hearing their like garage practices. Um, yeah, I was. But you know what? A lot of Kingstonians were. A lot of people grew up with the Tragically Hip. A lot of people knew and uh, came to know the Tragically Hip, uh, um, in particular Kingstonians, when you know they weren't huge and they were Kingston's band. And so I think for a lot of people, when the Tragically Hip did make it big, a lot of people from Kingston didn't even really realize that <laughs> because we just associated them with being Kingston's band. <laughs> Uh, what was Gord Downey like? Did, did you ever really get to sit down and chat with him and have a good conversation? Well, I had the opportunity, um, you know, definitely when I was mayor, to uh, um, uh, get to know the the members of the band perhaps a little bit better. Um, you know, the remarkable thing about the Tragically Hip, and you can see this in what Downey did in his final days, is that the Tragically Hip, um, what they are so incredibly good at, and they get very little fanfare for, is uh, because they don't want it for it, but is their ability to connect with their community and build up people within their community. The band has done so many um, not-for-profit events in Kingston. They've put money into a, a music lending library to, you know, get other kids with, you know, the, that have the talent but maybe not the resources to get them involved. And, you know, if there's one thing I can say about the Tragically Hip, it's that, you know, they never forgot where their community was and they always wanted to make their community better and they took their fame and they used it to make their community a better place and you know you see that in Gord and you see that you know when he realized his time was limited he said you know there's so much that I need to do with my fame I need to you know, use this as an opportunity to build up other people, and that's exactly what he did, in particular with uh, um, Indigenous communities. And, you know, this exemplified what Gord Downey and the Tragically Hip have always been like. How is the community coping with what is, you know, a massive loss for our country, but even more so uh, for Kingston? You know, just like many people throughout the country, um, there are a lot of people in Kingston that uh, are, are were hanging their heads uh, when they heard the news and continue to do so now. The on Wednesday evening, the city uh, in Market Square, where 
you know, roughly 25,000 people watched the last concert on the big screen that was set up there. Um, the, the, the market square was full again with, you know, a couple thousand people, um, you know, and, you know, some people brought guitars and kind of broke out into, into the tra- into tragically hip songs and, um, you know, paid their respects and remembered and talked about the good times. And, you know, I, there is a deep connection to, um, of a lot of Kingstonians to the tragically hip. These are individuals that grew up with the tragically hip. These are people, um, that it wasn't just about a song, um, or an album that they happened to buy once is about watching these individuals perform and perform their art in a way that, uh, resonated, um, with Canadians. And, you know, they love to watch it. They, they love to be part of it. That was liberal Mark Garretson, the MP for Kingston, Gore Downey's hometown. So we heard politicians speaking about Downey. Now let's hear about how Downey influenced politics. Michael Barclay wrote Gord Downey's obituary for Maclean's. He's actually one of Canada's best musical journalists and co-author of the acclaimed rock history book, Have Not Been the Same, the Can Rock Renaissance, 1985-1995. to He's currently working on a book about the tragically hip. Now, Michael spoke with Maclean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes about some of the ways that Gord Downey's career intersected with Canadian politics and policy. Michael Barclay starts out in this clip talking about the unexpected link between the hip and, of all things, two famous conservatives, pollster Alan Gregg and Hugh Siegel, who ended up becoming a Tory senator. Uh, Alan Gregg, uh, an enormous music fan, and um, uh, so Hugh Siegel had a... uh, 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 his wife's nephew, I think, was a good friend of the band, and he was like driving them everywhere, kind of a roadie character. And Siegel's wife was concerned, like maybe this guy's wasting his life with this this bunch of hooligans. So uh, he was like, "Oh, I know Alan really likes music. Maybe I'll pass him the tape and see what he thinks." So mm-hmm. it shows up on Alan's desk, and um, and he had just a few months earlier formed a music management um, firm with Jake Gold. Alan hears the tape. He's blown away. Uh, he plays it to Jake, feels the same way. They set up a showcase in Toronto, um, opening up for a Rolling Stones cover band uh, at Larry's Hideaway, and both Alan and Jake, their draws, jaws drop, and they sign the band. So now Alan, obviously, it was doing very well in his political career at that point. Um, he had a few uh, spare coins lying around, and he put a lot of money into the band early on. Um, and uh, one could argue, I don't know a lot of the ins and outs of this, but one could argue that a lot of their um, their independence that they're admired for was made possible because they had uh, a backer, a financial backer in Alan Gregg, who, you know, uh, very much protected them and, and, and empowered them to make their own decisions. So um, now, their their relationship soured with Gregg after a while. He, uh, he was still part of the the management team, but he was kind of out of the picture after a couple of years. Uh, Jake Gold continued to manage them for many years. Um, but yeah, so Alan Gregg is kind of this background figure and it was, it was a point of interest in those early days. It's like, how can this, you know, this is a rock and roll band and, and, uh, they have ties to the governing party of conservatives, you know, but you also think about Kingston and conservatism. Kingston is Flora McDonald, right? Uh And Kingston is, is a very, is progressive conservative. Kingston is, is red Tory, right? So, um, uh, you know, I wrote Rob Baker, the guitarist, is the son of what who was a long time the only judge in town before mm. Kingston became a two judge town. It was a one judge town, and it was Rob Baker's father. 
um, uh, Baker himself has said that he was a card-carrying conservative uh, as a youth. Uh, he's now a card-carrying liberal, but because uh, he married uh, a card-carrying NDPer, so of course. That was the compromise. <laughs> that's <laughs> story of Canadian that's politics. The, that's a Canadian right story there. right there. That's how Canadian <laughs> this band is. <laughs> so. Uh, um, yeah, but anyway, they were they were quite apolitical for most of their career because they were all about uh, inclusion. They really wanted everybody at their shows. Right at the final show in Kingston, Downey said, "We played for the bikers. We played for the students. The idea was that everybody is invited." So that applied politically as well. In the mid uh, '90s, they were hanging out with Midnight Oil from Australia, a very political band. The singer of that band went on to become Australia's environment. Minister, later the education minister, uh, Peter Garrett, and he, uh, being a, a large environmentalist, was very concerned about the clay caught sound clear cuts. So Downey went out to see Midnight Oil play um, uh, in clay caught sound on the stage assembled from uh, black and clear cut wood in the middle of nowhere. David Suzuki was there, and and this tweaks Downey. It's like uh, music has power to do this. You know, music has power to affect change. And um, but he felt like a dilettante because he's uh, he's you know he's a rock and roller. He plays in pubs and he's 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 working on his poetry. And uh, um, so he takes tentative steps. He feels like a dilettante. He's like, I don't know anything about this, but maybe I should say, hey, maybe you should read David Suzuki's books. Hmm. And then that's kind of the seed that I think comes to fruition in the last year. Uh, well, the last three years is when the Secret Path project really started. That was McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes in conversation with Toronto music journalist Michael Barclay. You can read Barclay's obituary for Gord Downey on the McLean's website. Still to come on the show, we continue our look back at the life of Gord Downey, and I'll be joined by an Algonquin elder who talks to us about Downey's efforts to shine a spotlight on issues facing our Indigenous peoples. But before we head to commercials, I wanted to let you listen to a portion of a touching tribute to Gord Downey. You can hear the full audio of this on our website, but on Thursday, during the Peace Tower Noon Show, Caroliner Jonathan Hebert played the tragically hip song, Bob Cajun. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, we speak with the NDP's Nathan Cullen about the controversy around the finance minister's personal finances. And we hear from the chief of the Canadian Human Rights Commission who's speaking out against Quebec's controversial new head covering ban. But first... I am a stranger We continue our look back at the life of tragically hip frontman Gord Downey, who passed away this week at the age of 53. Before the break, we heard about how Downey started to become more involved in speaking out about social issues. But toward the end of his life, his focus was clearly on one issue, helping Indigenous Canadians. 
In fact, his final project was a multimedia tale called Secret Path, which told the true story of Chani Wenjack, a young boy sent to a residential school and later died trying to escape. To speak more about Downey's efforts to shine a spotlight on Indigenous issues, I spoke with Claudette Commanda, an Algonquin elder who met Downey as he worked on Secret Path. What did that mean for you to see someone of, of Gord Downey's stature using that moment in his life to try and focus on the struggle of others? Very profound. It's a very profound sacrifice and gift that he gave. He gave of himself. Yes, indeed, he could have decided to you know, go off on his own and, and shut himself away from everyone. But the fact that he, he gave his life, he gave those last days of his life, and of course no one knew how many days he had left, but he did know he had, his days were numbered. So what he did was he gave of himself, and that was, that's a sacrifice. He blessed himself, he blessed his family, he blessed the, well, the Wenjack family, in honor of, of uh, Chani Wenjack and his family and all the residential school survivors, even those survivors that are still here today, they, they are so deeply touched by this generosity of Gord Downey, raising the awareness of residential schools. And the residential school survivors feel that this is justice that is being served onto them because their story is being told. And I had no idea, no idea I was ever going to meet Gord Downey. And then lo and behold, I did meet him. And they were very honored to come into the Algonquin Territory and very honored uh, to launched a secret path in Algonquin territory pursuant to Algonquin protocols, and they were very honored to meet um, residential school survivors from Kittigong Zibi, who, in fact, a few of them had attended the same uh, residential school that uh, Chani Wenjack and his family had attended. And um, when I met Gord Downey, well, to me, that was, um, it was like full circle, put it that way, because here was this man, you know who Gord Downey is. He's the musician, he, the musician, he's the artist. But you never expect you're ever going to meet such a celebrity in person. And you meet this celebrity in person, and he's a human being. He's a decent, kind human being, and he's, he's a friend. And, and, you know, he removed his titles, and, and he just became a friend of everyone. He gave his health to, to raise this awareness. He gave his time to raise this important awareness of, of Chani Wenjack and then the residential schools and what residential schools have done to First Nations children. And now we know these children are, are adults. But as what Gord Downey said, if we're going to make this right, we got to start somewhere and we got to start it now. And it wasn't just the residential school system no. that he spoke out no. about. It That's was right. about the environment as well, right. the infrastructure facing northern communities yes. more, more, I guess, specifically, but, but obviously um, indigenous communities across this country. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we heard um, his words at his last concert in Kingston when he said, what's, what's going up, north, up in the north is not right. And that being said, you know, it, it made people think. It made people think, like, okay, what's he talking about here? And he he raised that awareness, and he questioned it, and he sought answers. And indeed, absolutely, not only residential schools, but all those issues that impact uh, Indigenous peoples. And, he, and I believe that he raised the social consciousness of not only government, but the social consciousness of Canadians. 
And and as what he said, if we're going to do this right, we got well, we got to do it right if we're going to move forward with reconciliation. So often you see musicians who do acts like this. They speak out for a cause, and it means something to them, but it doesn't sort of take over, you know, part of their mission in life uh, the way that it seemed to have for Gord Downey. And and I say that because you, you could really tell that that was the case for him when facing the Assembly of First Nations, he was covered in a blanket and, and given an Indigenous name in a ceremony with AFN Chief Perry Bellegarde. Uh, I believe the name was He Who Walks Among the Stars. Yes. And... Um, he openly wept. He was overcome with emotion at the honor he was given by Indigenous people. And, and I think at that point, you could really tell how much that meant to him yes. to make sure that he gave back. Absolutely. It wasn't about him. It was about everyone else. And again, I go back to say that he sacrificed and he gave a blessing to us because he gave of himself. In essence, what Gord Downey has done for Indigenous peoples comes from truly from his heart and from his spirit and, and he spoke it in his words and in his actions and in his mind. And he exhibited nothing but kindness, generosity, and love. We honor Gord Downey, our friend, and we wish him well in our prayers on his journey because he truly now is walking with the stars. And I'm, there's no doubt in my belief that when he crossed over into that spirit world, Chani Wenjack was waiting for him to thank him. That was Claudette Commanda, an Algonquin elder, speaking about Gore Downey's efforts to spread awareness about Indigenous issues before his death. Still to come on McLean's on the Hill, the NDP's Nathan Cullen talks to us about the ethical controversy dogging the finance minister and Quebec's new head-covering ban is being slammed by the chief of Canada's Human Rights Commission. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on the show, we hear from the Chief Commissioner of the Canadian Human Rights Commission as she slams Quebec's new head covering ban. But first... I need to do more. As uh, Minister of Finance in this role, it's important to make sure people have absolute confidence that I wanted to set up a blind trust, that I wanted to move forward on ensuring that Neither me nor my family had any assets in Warner Chappelle. This is a way for me to assure Canadians to the highest level of confidence that there is no possibility of any conflicts of interest. That's a collage of comments from Finance Minister Bill Morneau, who, as you heard, announced on Thursday that he will be selling off all his shares in his family business, Morneau Chappelle, and placing all of his assets in a blind trust. Now, this comes after days of criticisms and allegations of a conflict of interest following revelations that he did not place his financial interests in a blind trust after taking over the role as the government's chief financial officer two years ago. Morneau defended himself, saying he disclosed all his assets to the ethics commissioner, and she sent him a letter saying he didn't have to have his assets in a blind trust since he had his shares in a separate holding company. The opposition says that that was just Morneau exploiting a loophole. The controversy dominated the headlines over the last week and overshadowed all efforts by the Trudeau government to try and focus on their tax reforms, which also had to be changed due to intense criticisms. So are these actions from the minister enough to stop the political bleeding? To answer that, 
I'm joined by NDP critic Nathan Cullen. Ah, it's my pleasure. Are you satisfied with what Bill Morneau has promised to do? Uh, no, because we also uh, aren't sure what Mr. Morneau owns, when he owned what he owned, how much profit he made off of it while he was finance minister. And the fact that we've been two years into this with uh, uh, essentially a lie out in the public that he had already done this. He had already he said he would likely do this. Everybody thought it. He allowed this thing to get repeated over and over. Um, never corrected the record. And meanwhile, we now find out he was introducing legislation that directly benefited him and his family. So, like, if someone, you know, robs a bank, gets caught, uh, you know, later and says, sorry, but doesn't return the money, it's hard to say, wow, that's amazing what that guy did. I'm not saying he robbed a bank. But I am saying that the ethical behavior that's being accepted by the liberals right now falls way below what they promised Canadians is not even up to the mandate letter that Mr. Trudeau had Mr. Morneau sign when he became finance minister to go above and beyond the technical rules. So using an ethical loophole for two years, not telling anyone about it, profiting from your actions as an elected official, all of that adds up to me to one big heck of an apology required. And we saw nothing of that yesterday. And it's kind of weird to me that folks want to say, well, he's ready to go and he's such a great guy. So before we get on to Bill 27, you know, mm-hmm. just taking a basic look at this, uh, we, uh-huh. we did see the letter from the Ethics Commissioner in yeah. which she did say that he didn't need to set up a blind trust, that he could use a screen yeah. instead. So since he didn't set up a blind trust, but the Ethics Commissioner said he didn't have to, right. what's wrong with that? Why is that well, so wrong? Right. Well, because the idea of a screen is that you would have somebody saying you can't do things to benefit yourself, for one example. Well, who was the screen? Well, it was his chief of staff, the guy he hired, who apparently, we don't know from Morneau, allowed him not only to sit in on meetings about pension bills and other changes that would directly impact Mr. Morneau's own finances, that didn't stop Mr. Morneau from introducing a whole bill that would help out Morneau Chappelle and directly through all of Mr. Morneau's shares, Mr. Morneau's own personal wealth. So if if the, the ethics commissioner can't sit in on every meeting, right? They, you, you can't legislate out stupid. You can't legislate out unethical behavior. You can set down rules. And that's why, I assume, Trudeau, when he put all these guys in cabinet, said you can't just go to the letter of the law. You've got to go beyond that. You've got to go to the spirit of it, which is we are here for public service, not for self-service. And I don't understand why Mr. Monod thinks this didn't benefit him because clearly there were some moments where, in fact, he was benefited. And the fact that he just didn't, come out and tell us the truth for so long makes me suspicious of everything else. And all of this, of course, swirls at a time when the finance minister was accusing small businesses of using dodgy loopholes, while he himself was using an ethical one to potentially benefit himself. Can, can you prove that there was a motive on, on behalf of the finance minister to try and personally benefit off of this? I mean, he's a very wealthy right. man already. Sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, what we know before Mr. Monod got into office we're, we're talking about the specific pension bill. The, the pension allowed, bill, yes. Yeah, targeted benefit plans. It's, it's, it's a new type of pension. Uh, it, it, it's actually a very bad type of pension for pensioners, which should mean something as you're watching the Sears fiasco and it was go so, on. It was something that the Conservatives previously had, had uh, flirted with, the right, idea. Right, but, but Mr. Morneau, when he was in the private sector, had advocated for that Morneau Chappelle, his old company, had said, this will be great for business, that... People in the stock market said, if these types of pensions come forward, buy Morneau Chappelle shares. So 
that's leading up to him getting into cabinet. He gets into cabinet. Less than a year later, about a year later, he introduces a bill to create these exact pensions that Morneau Chappelle has already made money off of. The stock in the following five days, following the introduction of this bill for Morneau Chappelle, went up almost 5%. The personal holdings of Mr. Morneau, he would have seen an increase in his wealth of $2 million. That's more money than most Canadians make in a lifetime of work. And sure, he's wealthy, but I, I've noticed around wealthy people, if you ask them when's enough, enough, <laughs> and that's never. It's, they're, they're good at making money. Mr. Mono is great at making money. Was it his sole incentive? No, but if you look at the, I, well, I, actually, I don't know, but if you look at the cause and effect, you say, how could he not get himself out of that conversation if there was such a clear conflict of interest where, you know, the expectations of Canadians is we get elected to public office to serve the public. And I don't think it's too much to ask that ministers don't introduce bills that directly benefit themselves. I don't think that's too high a bar to set. But he says he doesn't think that there was a conflict on his part and uh-huh. that his motivation behind this was not personal benefit. He wants to change uh-huh. the pension system so that Canadians have better pension options and can save for their retirements. Right. But the evidence on this bill, if you want to get into the legislation itself, is that it puts more risk onto the pensioners, the people hoping to get pension, and less risk onto the employers. It also means tons more work for companies like Morneau Chappelle because you have to have them involved all the time, rerunning numbers on an almost monthly basis to figure out what the pension is. So it's great. Hey, yes, it is more work for companies like Morneau Chappelle. But is it better for Canadian pensioners? Absolutely not. Is it better for some companies that want to get out of their pension obligations? Yeah, I guess so. But even the Conservatives wouldn't bring it in because there'd be a pensioner revolt, I would argue. And there's, when people know about this legislation and they see how it acts, then they realize that if you're somebody who has a pension with a company, it makes everything much more precarious and you just can't count on anything when you retire because it's all variable depending on these things and a lot of the risk is borne by the person who has attention not the company who helps set it up so given the fact that you disagree with this bill just based on the policy alone and not so much on the conflicts question that has popped up around bill Morneau, i think i know what you're going to say but what should happen with bill c27 oh it has to be seen as dead on arrival i mean i, I, don't, I don't know how it's right now it's sitting on the order paper so that means the liberals at any point could call it we could vote on it, and et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, it's terrible policy. It's horrible politics. And it's, you know, I, it's just outright dumb. So I, I assume that thing's dead. But, hey, man, I, I've never under, tried to underestimate liberal entitlement. I've been amazed sometimes how liberals will get themselves together and start to rationalize and rationalize. And by the end of the day, black is white and up is down. And you have things like the Gomery <laughs> inquiry that shows up. So, I, I just think this for Mr. Trudeau, who's, you know, is ad nauseum talking about the middle class, even though he and Mr. Morneau certainly don't come from it. This just seems to show that sort of insider connection, you know, the wealthy and well-connected doing well for themselves. And it's just it runs politically. I'm just talking now. Never mind policy. It just runs counter to everything Mr. Trudeau has been trying to establish um, for the last, well, years now, many years. So you've been in politics a long time. I've covered politics for a few years anyway. But, um, uh-huh. you know, when we see this kind of uproar over a controversy like this, usually we end up seeing the opposition saying someone has to resign, some heads have to roll for for all of this. And I haven't really seen that yet from the opposition saying uh, Bill Morneau has to resign. Do you think he, he needs to resign as finance minister? 
I think he's, I mean, certainly he's wounded. I don't think you can find anybody out there that says that he hasn't lost a lot of trust with Canadians, particularly with, you know, small businesses. Because, hey, keep in mind, Cormac, he was regulating a company that he had millions of dollars of shares in. <laughs> like, right, just right there. You, you say, well, wait, <laughs> did you not think that that was unethical to be the fox watching the NS? Um So it wounded fatally. I can't tell. I really thought he'd apologize. This is the first shot. This is the first attempt that the Liberals, Mr. Morneau, has put out to try to staunch bleeding on this thing. Um, I don't know if he survives it. I don't. You saw that press conference with Trudeau and Morneau where the Prime Minister was clearly not happy and wouldn't let his finance minister speak. You, you get into situations like that. When a, when a Prime Minister of a country loses faith and confidence in his finance minister, you run into a lot of trouble. Um, and certainly I know a lot of Liberal colleagues that I've been talking to on the Hill this week are furious because they went out and told their constituents who are already upset about some of these small business things and some of the other things the Liberals have done. They said, don't worry, don't worry. Our finance minister is clean as a whistle. Trust me, he's a good guy. And it's like, well, he may be a good guy, but apparently he wasn't telling everybody the truth. So have you- I've, yeah, I've never seen anything like it. I, I mean, I've, I've seen people in trouble. I've seen bad policies. I've not seen a finance minister ever make such poor decisions about his own personal involvement and the what is obvious to everybody involved, a massive conflict of interest in the way he was performing his duties. The economic update is expected out next week, yeah. and it should be, it's expected to be rather rosy for the Trudeau government. So do you think that the good economic news will then overshadow these ethical concerns that you have with the finance minister? Yeah. The ethics remain, right? Like the, the way you conduct yourself ethically. You know, this happens in business sometimes, right? Where you'll find out a CEO is conducting himself in terrible behavior, yet the company was making money at the time, and the shareholders have to decide, are you okay with that? Right? It's not saying that the unethical behavior makes you successful. Sometimes it does, but I'm not suggesting it in this case. So I want the economy to do well. If the economic update next week is good, great. I, my experience has been politicians take credit for things they had nothing to do with and get blamed sometimes for some things they had nothing to do with. I'm sure the Liberals will take all the credit in the world for this um, if things are, look good. But if the economy is truly good, it's not part-time jobs, if we're not just floating on a housing bubble, then that'll be something to celebrate. That hasn't totally been the case so far, but let's see. Let's see what next week holds. That was the NDP's Nathan Cullen speaking to me about the ethical controversy surrounding Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Coming up after the break, Quebec's new head covering ban is being slammed by the chief commissioner of the canadian human rights commission she joins us coming up next welcome back to mclean's on the hill i'm cormac mcsweeney parliament hill bureau chief for city news and rogers radio the quebec national assembly passed bill 62 this week a law which prohibits public sector service providers from doctors to daycare workers, even to bus drivers, from covering their faces. But even more controversially is that it says anyone seeking to use public services also cannot cover their faces. The obvious target of Bill 62 is the small minority of Muslim women who wear face veils like the niqab. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was cautious about wading into the debate, but Marie-Claude Landry, the Chief Commissioner of the Canadian Human Rights Commission, was much more blunt and critical of Quebec's new law. 
Chief Commissioner Landry spoke with McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes. You put out a statement. What's your what's your general reaction to that law? Um, as we mentioned in the communique, we are extremely worrisome that the government will actively target a marginalized group that is already suffering from discrimination and for a country as Canada, where we are often seen as a model, I believe that it's it's not acceptable in Canada uh, as a country known for respecting human rights. I believe strongly that no person living in this country should have to uh, experiment any discrimination or, or endure any discrimination like that. I think it's clear what you mean by this, but at the risk of sounding like I'm being obtuse here, let me ask you something. The, the people in the Quebec government will say, no, we're not targeting any specific group. We're generally banning face coverings. How do you respond to that? Yeah, but we know that face covering is uh, is mostly Muslim women. Then it's, it's, it's for me that it's targeting a group. And I strongly believe that our government institutions and our laws should help eliminate discrimination and not enable it. It's, 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 it's clear for me that think, we, the law, target Muslims. I think a lot of Canadians who don't uh, pretend to be experts on human rights law or the various human rights codes that are in fact might imagine that the Canadian Human Rights Act would, would apply in this kind of a case. Quebec is, of course, part of Canada. Can you explain to people why does it not clearly apply in general to this uh, law? But first, um, Canadian Human Rights Act apply when it's federal jurisdiction. But that being said, we think that the Canadian Human Rights Act may apply in some limited circumstances. We have, uh, as an example, municipal transportation. And a good example of that is the transportation by the, uh, the um, OTS in between Gatineau and Ottawa, then they cross provincial border. That's it's become a domain of federal jurisdiction for us. That's that's one of the examples. Commissioner, just for people who aren't from the national capital region, I'll just say that that's you're referring there to the fact that municipal buses from the Gatineau side of the Ottawa River cross over to the Ottawa side of the Gatineau River and so cross from Quebec to Ontario. So there's some concern about how for example, a ban on letting people ride those municipal buses with a with a with a face scarf on, that 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 would be uh, that would be problematic because they'd be coming from the Quebec jurisdiction to the to the Ontario jurisdiction. Yes. Uh, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. I I should say that also anyone who will enter eventually in the province of Quebec. That that law affect, I believe, the Canada's image as an inclusive and tolerant society. And uh, as for us, that's that's a problem. Anyone will enter in the province of Quebec, their rights could be impacted. And that's a threat against Canada's reputation. Mm. As you perhaps know, or I will tell you, that our act and the UN, United Nations, requires that the Canadian Human Rights Commission to speak out when human rights are threatened, and it's that I, we believe that that act could have a reputational impact on all Canadians. All Canadians will be affected by that inter, uh, by that related to our international reputation. 
Commissioner, let me be clear on that, though. The Canadian Human Rights Act it protects Canadians in federal jurisdiction. The degree to yeah. which which you feel compelled to speak out on this, it has more to do with Canada's reputation than any specific way that you would hope to enforce uh, the act in some way in Quebec. Is that is that fair beyond these narrow issues like the buses crossing the bridges that go across the borders? But this is after a preliminary review of the law we have identified that specific example. We are actually, it's brand new, it's three days ago, if I'm correct, and we, we, we will certainly have a look on it uh, more specifically and see. But it's one of the reasons, and the other one is all, also our role as national institution of this country, the human rights institution, national institution, mm. that to make sure that we as a country respect human rights and the reputation that we have as a human rights defender. Is there any possibility that the Canadian Human Rights Commission might decide to hold hearings or in some other way uh, formally look into the implications of Bill 62? As we mentioned in our communique, if we or if there is any uh, charter challenge, we we will have a look on how and uh, if uh, or or in which way that the Canadian Human Rights Commission can be uh, involved or can be, can can intervene. So you would intervene in court uh, if there was a if there was a challenge not before your not before your commission or your tribunal, but if there was a challenge in court, you would become an intervener. It's if there is a chal- a charter challenges, it's a possibility that the we the, in fact. If a charter challenges is brought, we will determine our role in the public interest. Because the Canadian Human Rights Commission always act in the public interest. And we will see if in the public interest, the Canadian Human Rights Commission will intervene in that specific case or not. Hmm. This is how we how we will proceed. All decisions taken by the, the commission are in public interest. Then at, it, it will depend on the charter challenges. It will depend on the case. But certainly, if it's in the public interest, that's going to be our role to intervene. Chief Commissioner, um, may I ask a question about your decision to put out a statement on this? Um, politicians at the federal level, some other public officials outside Quebec, have seemed reluctant to wade in on what is being defined in some circles as very much a Quebec-only uh, debate. Can I ask, did you think hard about whether or not you should become a, a public voice in this in this uh, discourse? Uh, first, for sure, before every statement, declaration, or op-ed, or whatsoever, we it's, it's a, a serious exercise that should we or should we not. Yeah. That being said, the Canadian Human Rights Commission is an independent organization. We're kind of a watchdog if I may uh, call the Canadian Human Rights Commission like that, and in conformity to our Act, Article 27, and the UN United Nations requirement, we as a national institution have the obligation, the duty, the responsibility to speak out when human rights are threatened in this country. This is our job and over and above the, the question of jurisdiction. This is a, a requirement. 
That was Marie-Claude Landry, the Chief Commissioner of the Canadian Human Rights Commission, speaking with McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief, John Geddes. Well, that's it for this week's episode. For more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill.